0: Welcome to the first in a series of podcasts from Sadie Records, and we're going to begin this podcast series with a recent album, Third Coast Percussion, featuring Sean Connors, Robert Dillon, Peter Martin, and David Skidmore, and the album is dedicated to the music of Steve Reich, and we're joined by one of the members of the ensemble, David Skidmore. David,
1: welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. First, tell us a bit about your background. Well, like my bandmates, I'm a classically trained percussionist. So we all, four of us, met while studying music at Northwestern University, and we all majored in percussion performance, and there, at the time, was a wonderful percussion professor who was a real champion of chamber music for percussion, Michael Burrett. While we were there, we studied with him, and we kind of caught the bug from him for chamber music for percussion and fell in love with it and decided we wanted to dedicate our careers to it, and 10 years later, that's still what we're doing.
0: So the group was founded 10 years ago?
1: Yep, 2005. This is our
0: 10th anniversary season. So it's a percussion ensemble. How does that differ, if it does at all, from other ensembles like a string quartet or other chamber ensemble?
1: Well, we model ourselves off of the chamber music model. So very much we're modeling ourselves off of a string quartet. I mean, we approach rehearsals that way, we approach the repertoire that way, our performances that way. So the main differences are repertoire. A string quartet plays music that's hundreds of years old or brand new music. And the oldest music that we play as an ensemble is about 70 or 80 years old. So happily for us, that means a lot of commissioning new works and playing the works of the, the great composers of our day.
0: Did you ever wonder what it would have sounded like if somebody had commissioned Beethoven to write? Uh, <laughs> I
1: think the end of the Ninth Symphony is pretty much what you would have gotten. I think because there, there was no tradition at the time of, of a melody being on a percussion keyboard instrument, for instance. But yeah, that's it's fun to kind of think about. And there are really wonderful percussionists and percussion ensembles who transcribe or arrange, you know, the music of Beethoven or other composers who never wrote for percussion. They will transpose or transcribe that music for percussion. And that's not something that we do, but it's a it's another fun way to sort of interact with the medium.
0: Is that little Turkish March in the Ninth Symphony? Is that what you're thinking? Exactly.
1: Yeah. Da 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 da. Ta-da, with the symbols and the triangle, and it's really charming. Actually, it's kind of what. What's so funny about that? That is a perfect example of what percussion music is still doing today. That was completely exotic at the time. That was the music of a, in heavy quotes, foreign culture being brought to Austria, and it sounded exotic. It sounded like you know this other world that most people in the audience had probably not visited, and in an interesting way, I think. Percussion music has continued that tradition of celebrating the music of largely non-Western cultures and bringing it into a framework that we think of as Western European, predominantly, of composed music. A lot of those notions have been exploded in the last few decades, and that's wonderful. You see people from all over the world writing composed music. But Steve Reich, for instance, visited Ghana when he was a young man and learned some of the drumming traditions of that country, And it was a huge influence on him and the music that he wrote.
0: Well, uh, you've jumped a little bit ahead of the gun because we're going to talk about Steve Reich. This album is dedicated to Reich. What drew you to recording his music?
1: Well, we've been playing Steve Reich's music since the group was founded. And that's, I think, a very natural thing for a percussion ensemble because Steve Reich is one of the best-known composers that's writing music today. And very happily for percussionists, a lot of his most important work features percussion instruments very prominently. And a lot of the musical ideas that he works with in his pieces just fit perfectly on percussion instruments. So basically, over the course of the 10 years that we've been playing music together, we've always played Reich's music and sort of, I think, waited for the right time to put our stamp on it. 2016 will be the year of Steve Reich's 80th birthday, so it's a kind of a momentous occasion and, and maybe a, a good time to celebrate this amazing composer and everything he's done for the world of percussion music.
0: Are there many Reich pieces for just percussion? You've chosen four. How did you come upon these four?
1: There are more than just the four that are on this record that are for all percussion or predominantly percussion instruments. But these are the four that we play the most, the four that naturally become a part of our repertoire. We love everything about being a percussion quartet, which means both playing on instruments that are easily identifiable as percussion instruments like drums, and keyboard instruments like the xylophone or the or the vibraphone, and occasionally playing on much crazier stuff. On uh, John Cage bass, you might play on tin cans. But we are really, I think, drawn to keyboard percussion instruments. And so those feature very prominently in this particular album and the pieces that we chose.
0: So we're gonna hear a selection from Mallet Quartet. Um, tell us a little bit about this piece in particular and the
1: movement we're about to hear. Sure, so this is the newest piece on the album. Um, it was written uh, just a handful of years ago. And this is actually the piece on the album that we've probably played the most. It calls for two marimbas and two vibraphones, and it uses a lot of the ideas that Reich has become known for over the years. Like, for instance, one idea being introduced in one player's part and that exact same idea happening in another player's part, but offset by a beat or two beats. But what's interesting about Malek Quartet is that he's working in longer phrases here. He's writing really melodies, which if you work backwards in his career and look at the earlier music, the idea of a melody in the traditional sense is not something you would think of in Steve Reich's music. But with his later works, he is writing melodies, and really beautiful melodies, and yet he's still using his signature compositional language. So these melodies are offset from one another, and the offsetting of those melodies creates this kind of beautiful other music that is more than the sum of its parts.
0: So let's hear the third movement from Mallet Quartet. Our guest, David Skidmore, along with his colleagues Peter Martin, Robert Dillon, and Sean Connors. We've heard a movement from Mallet Quartet and it's from a Sadie Records recording featuring Third Coast percussion and the music of Steve Reich in honor of his eightieth birthday in twenty sixteen. And the performers were our guest, David Skidmore, and his colleagues Peter Martin, Robert Dillon, and Sean Connors. David, how would you assess Reich's impact on contemporary music in the world?
1: He's had a huge impact. And I think what's interesting is that he is a classical composer, composer of classical music, composed music. So he's had a huge impact in that area. There are generations of musicians who I think have listened to his music and drawn inspiration from it, including notable Pulitzer Prize-winning composers like Julia Wolfe and David Lang. And now a whole new generation of composers like Nico Muley, for instance. There's really too many to name. But I think what's also interesting about Reich is that his influence goes beyond composers of classical music. David Bowie went to some of the early performances of Music for 18 Musicians. And people like Brian Eno cite Steve Reich as a major influence. And if you look at a lot of the musical trends today, I think what is exciting is that Reich has had a very genuine and very positive creative influence on so many different kinds of musicians. I think that's really indicative of the world of music today, and so it's part of what makes it so exciting for us in performing righteous music. Does
0: the word minimalist to describe him, is that no longer pertinent? Did he move beyond that?
1: I think he never liked it, but I think that he, at a certain point, probably made his peace with it. Like any other label, it's limiting and it's not entirely right. I don't know if Impressionist painters liked being called Impressionist. You know? But when, when you say minimalism, people within a certain circle know what you mean, and I think that that's got its own value. But certainly, if you listen to even his work starting in the, in the 80s, to call them minimal, I think, doesn't quite capture the breadth of what's going on. An early work, sure, maybe it's based on just a single idea, and then you really understand where that term minimalism comes from. But by the time he's writing a piece like Sextet, He's still using some of those ideas from the very early, more quote minimalist pieces, but he's expanded far beyond just that basic vocabulary.
0: Now we've mentioned that this is a CD Records recording, and we also are joined today by the president of CD, Jim Ginsburg. Jim, what appealed to you about this particular concept? And this is the first release on CD Records of Third Coast Percussion. What uh, what attracted you to this idea?
2: It is Third Coast's CD Records debut. Of course, Third Coast is recorded on other labels. we had been looking to record Third Coast for quite a while because the ensemble is so spectacular, as you'll hear on this recording. It was just a question of finding the right project, and this one was, to me, clearly the right project. And I love the idea of celebrating Reich's 80th birthday and also... As I think it mentions in the notes, this music is in a percussionist's blood, so it was a perfect introduction, I think, for the ensemble on the label. You were talking about minimalism, and to me, one of the things I love about Reich is that his vocabulary goes beyond what we think of as minimalist. Even just the textures move so much, I think, more quickly and more subtly and more interestingly than in that of a lot of other composers who— you know, whose music fits that label. And that's why I think uh, you're right to say he kind of transcends the label and, and makes, makes it into his own style that's really beyond what we just consider quote-unquote minimalism.
0: Let ask you a question about performing this type of music, we'll, we'll avoid using the term. Does it require a special kind or type of concentration that might not be required in, in more classical music?
1: I think that's fair to say. I think that playing Reich's music... I will say it varies very much piece to piece. But uh, if I was going to speak generally about performing Reich's music, it does require extraordinary concentration. And maybe even more interesting than that, like any music, it can be performed well or it can be performed in a way that is not so good. (laughs) And I think one major difference is that a boring performance of Steve Reich's music lacks, in my opinion, this sort of pervasive intensity that starts at the beginning of every piece and continually pushes and it's almost like you feel a hand pressing on your back as a performer and it never stops until the piece is over. And if you're not feeling that, you're not feeling an urgency and a real feeling like something is at stake at every moment, yeah, that's when that's when it just starts to sound like a bunch of things that are repeating over and over again. And I think that what's interesting for Reich as just a, a composer and a creative person is that I think in his lifetime he's gone from Writing this music which everyone, maybe when he first wrote it, just thought he was nuts, you know. Maybe he was so far outside of the tropes of the time that he really had to work hard to establish the legitimacy of what he was doing. And it's interesting to talk to him now because the phrase that he used when I talked to him about it is that his music is now part of the furniture in the room. So whereas when he got started, someone at my stage as a professional percussionist would have no idea what to make of his music. Now, you know, I've grown up playing this music. From the time I was in college, this was a part of my education. And so the concentration that's needed for the music and and really just a deeper look at how it can be interpreted, I think is a natural result of the years that have transpired between when he wrote the piece and where we're at today.
2: If I could get on my soapbox for a moment here, I think this is a great example of why contemporary music depends so much on the performer, I think, more than maybe more standard repertoire because if you hear a bad performance of a Beethoven sonata, you know it probably wasn't Beethoven's fault. Whereas when you hear a contemporary piece and you don't like it, you may not be able to tell, well, was that really because the composer's piece was kind of weak or was it the performance didn't bring out what it needed to? And one of the things I think about Third coast performances, especially in this repertoire, and it's been cited by many critics, is the colors and drama they bring to this music really brings it to life in a way that I don't think is always the case, as David mentioned.
0: I want to go back to the point that you made about having grown up with the music, and I'm going to quote you from the album Notes. You say, as the second or arguably third generation to perform Reich's music, our responsibility in performance and recording is not to document this repertoire, it no longer needs basic preservation, but rather to put our own stamp on it. How did you do that on this album?
1: Well, first of all, I'm not quite that eloquent. My colleague Rob wrote those words, but I'll take credit for them. (laughs) So it's definitely a sentiment that all four of us share. Basically, we put our own stamp on the pieces really in the same way that we've tried to do with any other music that we've played that was music that existed before we started as a group, and we've commissioned so much music and premiered it. But we've recorded John Cage's music, we've recorded Steve Reich's music, and basically we tried to go to the source. So in this particular case, we got to spend about a week with uh, Russell Hartenberger, who's one of the original members of Steve Reich's ensemble, and a fabulous percussionist, and he premiered many of the works that are on that album. And we talked to him about how the pieces were written. How the initial performances happen, how the pieces have developed over the years, um, and we just tried to pick his brain as much as possible about the history of the of the music, and then having done our due diligence, we then said, okay, you know, we're armed with as much knowledge as we can bring to bear on this. Now, what do we think? And there are some big interpretive decisions on the album. And we've played the album for Reich, and he remarked on that and very much loved it. I think the exact words he said were sometimes people ask if my music allows for interpretation, and I can think of no better response than to just play them your entire album. (laughs) Hmm. Which for me is like the best compliment. Mm -hmm. Because we don't change anything, you know, we're not changing notes and rhythms, but we are hearing it a certain way and we're playing it a certain way. And that's what Composed music has been about for centuries. And I hope that for Reich, that's way more exciting than just another album coming out that sounds exactly like the album of his music that his ensemble put out 30 years ago. Because to me, that means it's, it lives on, you know, and it's now got a life of its own, I think, in a really exciting way.
2: As president of Sadie Records, I produce about half of the recordings on the label. I can't take credit for this one, but it is a spectacular production. And I think really when we talk about the colors and the drama, we have to give some credit to the production team. Could you talk a little bit about who they are and what they contributed to the project? Yeah, absolutely.
1: So we worked with an engineer named Dan Nichols, who at this point we've actually worked on every single one of our recordings with. He's been with us since the very first album that we recorded. So that was a fun, sort of familiar territory. He's got a brilliant ear, and he's got more microphones than I could even imagine. But new for us on this record was a producer, Jesse Lewis, and it was really, really fantastic to meet Jesse and to talk to him about this project and to work with him on it, and partially because... Although he knew Righteous music, he had never produced a recording of Reich's music. He is a performer himself, but he had never performed Steve Reich's music. So it was new to him in what ended up being a very, very refreshing way because he approaches it with a real respect for what the music was, but without thinking of it as some kind of other thing, You know, just thinking of it as music. And so it was great for us because... I think this is true uh, for any performers, but when you're, especially when you're doing a recording, you can get really wrapped up in the technicalities. You know, for us, it's which type of mallet are we going to use on this section of this piece, or am I going to do this sticking right, left, right, left, or right, right, left, left, and stuff that actually at the end of the day is important, but uh, is maybe not as important as the spirit of what's happening and the, and the sort of magic of the music in the moment. And that's what Jesse is incredible about because we would do a take and we would say oh I think they went really well because all the rhythms were really tight and everything interlocked really well and he'd come and he'd say you know I picture this section and it's late at night and you're at a cafe and it's you're tired and you know you should go to sleep but you get like another cup of coffee anyway and you just stay up a little bit later and we're like you know what? What? <laughs> but, he, but he paints these images that are beautiful. And, and that's what he's hearing. And, you know, I think musicians sometimes can really poo-poo that stuff and, and just say, uh, you know, is it supposed to be louder or softer, faster or slower? But when you really embrace it and you try and, and capture some of these images, that really adds a specialness to the music. And I think you really hear that on the recording. I think Jesse is able to bring that out of musicians in a very honest way. And I also think that you hear on the album his enthusiasm, both for the music and for the process of capturing it in the best way possible.
0: Well, Sextet was written in 1985, and it features two pianists. Tell us a bit about the piece. Sure. We're, we're going to hear one movement, the slow
1: movement. So Sextet was written in the mid-1980s, and it was originally written for dancers. And I think you actually really hear that in the piece and what's interesting about this piece in the sort of history of Reich's output is that it plays by the rules of some of his music from the 70s. There are processes that are unfolding in a sort of logical way such that a listener, even if they can't pinpoint exactly what's happening, they can say, oh, I recognize that there's a process unfolding. But what's very interesting here is that Reich starts to break from that mold completely completely. So in particular, the transitions between the movements are these really dramatic musical moments that are just through composed. So it's almost as if a process is unfolding and then there's an explosion. That's this transition that leads us to the next movement and the next set of processes. So we'll hear the third movement and what we'll hear first is one of these explosions. So we're coming from a very calm and quiet second movement and then bang, out of nowhere. We sort of shift gears and then we're in the third movement, which is my personal favorite and I think some of the most dramatic music that's ever been written for percussion.
0: That was the third movement from Sextet by Steve Reich, written in 1985 and performed by Third Coast Percussion. And this is an album on Sadie Records celebrating the music of Steve Reich in this, his 80th anniversary year. And our performers were our guest, David Skidmore, and he was joined by his colleagues Peter Martin, Robert Dillon, and Sean Connors, and pianists David Friend and Oliver Hagen. So, David, we're going to um, talk a bit now about the issue of technology in your performances and in Reich's music. You have a little project coming up, which is sort of high-tech, as they say, in Silicon
1: Valley. We have designed a free mobile app that is based on the compositional ideas in Steve Reich's music, and it's sort of a companion to the album. We basically take the musical ideas that are in this album and in so much of Steve Reich's music, and we kind of unpack them and have created three games that uh, the users can play to interact in real time with these compositional processes. So for instance, one of the things that Reich does is he puts his own spin on a musical idea that's hundreds of years old, the idea of a canon, where one musical line is happening and then the same musical line is played by a different instrument, but starting at a different point in the pattern so that there's this sort of dovetailing effect, almost like an echo effect in the music. So in the app, for instance, you can, with your finger on your iPhone or iPad, drag a pattern and hear how the different points at which it might be out of phase with itself can affect what the listener is hearing. You can record your own sound into the phone and have that play one of these patterns. For us, it all stems from something that we love so much about what we do as percussionists, which is that there is a very easy entry point for any person to make a sound on one of our instruments. So for instance, if you went to a string quartet concert and you loved it and you'd never played music in your life, you could not go up on stage and pick up a violin and make a sound that anyone would wanna hear. (laughs) But if you come to one of our concerts and you were to go up on stage and we hand you a mallet, you could make a sound on a marimba. You can make a sound on a vibraphone. And we love that spirit, that sort of inclusive spirit of, of what percussion music for us is all about. And so, this app is kind of an extension of that. You know, we all these days have a phone in our pocket, which can tell time and be a metronome and, you know, be a phone and be an iPod and all these different things. And since we all have that, and we all have a certain knowledge base of how to operate these different apps that we have, we wanted to create one that would introduce Steve Reich's music so that if you come to one of our concerts and you enjoy it, you can learn about this composer and you can learn about the musical ideas that he uses. And it's designed such that it might be interesting to someone who is a musician but never performs Steve Reich's music, or it could easily be used by someone who has absolutely no musical experience whatsoever. So it's been a really fun project, and it'll be available very soon on iPhone and iPad, and it will also be available soon on Android. Who developed it for you? We worked with a developer based in California and a designer who worked with us as we were sort of supplying musical ideas, and they were supplying the who knows what kind of technology that makes those ideas comes to life.
0: <laughs> so is the user, um, when they're moving around phrases, is it recordings from the album?
1: That's right, yes. So it, some of it is recordings from the album. We do use one musical idea, which Reich built upon later in his career, but one of his very early pieces is called It's Gonna Rain. And this is really nascent Steve Reich. He took two tape reels and a recording of, of a man saying It's Gonna Rain, and he had identical recordings on both tape reels but one of the tape reels was moving just slightly faster than the other so that they start in perfect unison but then over the course of several minutes they become out of sync with one another and that goes on and on and on and on and you start to hear these crazy other melodies and you start to hear these other rhythms happening in the speech and then enough time passes and the Tape loop gets back to itself, and they're back in unison again.
0: He did that a long time ago, didn't he? Late 60s, yes, early 70s. exactly. There's a piece that he wrote using that technique that I used to play on the radio a lot in Boston.
1: Might have been come out. That was it. Exact same process, just a different recorded um, phrase. So in our app, we use It's Going to Rain. It's the same ideas as come out. And you see the waveform, which has become a very identifiable image for many people. And you can, again, with your finger, sort of slide where the waveform is against its duplicate. And you can speed up or slow down how fast the tape loop is becoming out of sync with itself. Or, again, you can record your own tape loop and hear your own voice becoming out of sync.
0: David, Third Coast Percussion has partnered with many different organizations from architecture foundations to planetariums, and I'm sure lots of other organizations. How have these collaborations impacted the ensemble? How does it impact your work in terms of repertoire choice or performance choices or whatever it might be?
1: Well, usually when we're partnering with a field outside of music, not usually, always, the impetus for that collaboration is the music itself. So, for instance, a few years ago we performed a piece at the Adler Planetarium, by a French composer named Gerard Griset. And Griset's piece, which we didn't commission, it was was already written, draws inspiration from pulsars, which is an astronomical phenomenon, dying stars that send out radiation that can be heard on earth as rhythm. And so for us, it's really just about finding more points of entry for people for, for the music that we play. One of the most fruitful collaborations that we have is with the College of Engineering at the University of Notre Dame, where we're ensemble in residence. And an amazing project that came from that collaboration was a collaboration with a composer named Glenn Kochi, who's a Chicago-based composer and also a rock drummer. And Glenn had this idea to write a piece for us where we would build the instruments for the piece on stage and the sounds of building the instruments would be a part of the performance and then we would play music on the instruments, which we thought was a great idea that we would never be able to pull off. But these very enthusiastic engineers at the University of Notre Dame came to us and were itching to do a project with us. And so we sort of pitched this project to them, and they loved it and ran with it. And that piece is called Wild Sound, and we've now performed it three times last season, and we're about to take it on tour to Europe and California and Wisconsin. And really, I think what comes of that sort of collaboration, when it is successful is that both parties, you know, you sort of have your worldview expanded in a really positive way. So as musicians, we get to watch engineers work and realize that, although sometimes the conception about engineers is that they are analytical people who have not a creative bone in their body, and sometimes the misconception about musicians is that they are these creative people who can't tie their shoes, The reality is, of course, something in between. Engineers have tremendous creativity that they have to bring to bear to be successful with the projects that they're doing. And musicians, if they're not analytical and they don't have their act together, never get to play a note on stage. So I think that's a sort of a big view of what these collaborations have meant for us is just sort of showing, first of all, helping us learn things that we wouldn't have learned otherwise, and also sort of changing the way that we think about how our music fits with the world and the audiences that we play it for
0: but can you tie your shoes no I, uh, <laughs>
2: they, they have people for that we have velcro up, <laughs> <so>. <laughs>
0: but but in these collaborations that you mentioned i think there's another element you're talking about performing at a planetarium or with a rock uh, musician isn't it also about expanding the audience for what you do
1: yeah absolutely that's absolutely the case we are passionate about the music that we play We love it, and people who come to our concerts tend to love it. And so the biggest uh, thing that we work on is getting more people to come to the concerts. I think if it was just that, we wouldn't bother doing these collaborations because they're a ton of work. And if the creative output wasn't enhanced by these experiences, it wouldn't be worth it alone to just bring the piece in front of more people. But bringing this music that we care so much about to new audiences is a big part of what we do.
0: So, David, tell us about this 1994 piece, Nogoya Marimbas, kind of an interesting title.
1: Sure. I think the most interesting thing about the piece is that it's the most often performed work on the album. It's a huge part of what it means to study percussion today. So students all over the world play this piece, and there's a practical reason for it. It takes two performers. It is very virtuosic, but, you know, at any music school, you can hopefully find a couple people who've got their chops together enough to do it. It takes two marimbas, whereas sextet, also needs two pianos, two vibraphones, two synthesizers, two bass drums, and crotales. And the piece is an unfolding of the sort of processes that Steve Reich's music is known for, but it's also very melodic, and it has a really beautiful harmonic language. Reich cites, especially John Coltrane, bebop musicians, and sort of jazz harmony as a major influence on his harmonic language. And I think you hear that the title, Nagoya Marimba's, is in reference to who commissioned it and where it was premiered. But everyone hears something different, and I think that there's maybe a little bit of the country that inspired it in the piece as well.
0: You just heard Sean Connors and Peter Martin performing from a piece from 1994, Nagoya Marimbas by Steve Reich, from their new album on Sadie Records, Third Coast Percussion. And it's in honor of Steve Reich's 80th anniversary.
2: You talked earlier about how you worked with a member of Steve Reich's ensemble as part of your study of this, but then came up with your own interpretations. Can you give an example of where your interpretations differed from those of Reich's own performers?
1: A good example is Music for Pieces of Wood, a very early piece. And if there's a piece on the album that I think you could responsibly call minimalist, that's the one. It's a very simple set of processes, and the playing out of the processes is enough to make an interesting piece of music. And I think that an interpretation of Reich's music from even 10 or 15 years ago would be just play the notes. Play every note forte, play it strong, let the patterns and the sort of beauty of the mathematics and the patterns be enough. And then the listener can hear this part or this part or this part. And we, without throwing that idea out entirely, we frame things a little bit. And one example is there's a pulse throughout that entire piece, which in this case is played by probably the most underutilized resource on this entire album. Matthew Duvall from 8th Blackbird plays quarter notes for 15 minutes on our album. (laughs) But he plays them beautifully. A pulse starts, and then this very recognizable rhythm that Steve Reich composed comes in on one block of wood. And then a second player enters with what we in Third Coast think of as a solo line. It's a single note and just a single note repeating. And then you hear two notes of a pattern repeating. And then you hear three notes of a pattern repeating. And eventually what happens is that second player has built up the entire pattern that the first player was playing, but it's just offset by three quarter notes. And you could play that just everyone playing forte, just laying it down. But we shape things a little bit. The pulse comes in, and then it recedes slightly so that the listener can hear that the next thing that comes in is extremely important. And then that pattern happens, and then a soloist comes in, and so the first player comes down a little bit. It's kind of, when you think about it, it's really, really basic musicianship, I think. But we apply that to a lot of Reich's music, and I actually think that it's very valuable in the first instance as well. And I also think that there's a misconception that early Reich interpretations were very cut and dry, Because I think that conceptually they were, and I think that if you would, maybe if you had asked Reich in 1973 how to play this piece, that's exactly what he would have told you. But actually, I think really good musicians kind of do these things naturally anyway, and we just made very conscious decisions about it. And you can extrapolate that to the entire album. We just, you know, we make interpretive decisions. We play with a tempo here, we play with the dynamics here, we phrase everything because, you know, music exists in phrases as far as we're concerned.
2: Since we're going to end the podcast with a clip from uh, Music for Pieces of Wood, uh, can you talk for a moment about your own part? Because you're the last one in, but it seems to me the moment you come in, you're dominating the texture, and it's really your rhythms that kind of redefine everything else that's going on, and that's been going on until you came in.
1: Yeah, I love my part in that piece, because I do come in last, and particularly in the last section of the piece you hear this, but throughout the piece, any time a new player enters you can completely lose your place. I mean, the piece is written in 6-4 in time, so you should be able to count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 throughout the entire thing. But a new player comes in, and all of a sudden, one gets thrown out the window, and it moved over here, and you can't figure out how to get your firm footing again.
2: And you guys play this from memory, right?
1: Yeah, and that's another kind of interesting trick to the piece. I think it's, it's often pre- performed from memory, which isn't a big deal as long as you do this thing that you have to do in righteous music where you simultaneously know where you are in relation to the true downbeat, and you play in such a way that you imply that the downbeat could be somewhere else. And that's really where the fun comes in because it can really, as a performer, can turn you around, and we've had it happen to us in performance. (laughs) But when I listen to our recording of music for Pieces of Wood, even though I'm absolutely in the moment, I know exactly where I am within the measure So
0: let's listen now to an excerpt from Music for Pieces of Wood, Third Coast Percussion, joined by Matthew Duvall. We've heard an excerpt from "Music for Pieces of Wood," as the last piece of music on this podcast celebrating the 80th anniversary of Steve Reich's birth, and it's a Sadie record. Third Coast Percussion featured their first album on Sadie Records, and it's been my pleasure to talk with the president of Sadie Records, Jim Ginsburg, and David Skidmore. David, what's coming up for a Third Coast Percussion in the next period of time?
1: Well, we're touring a lot of Steve Reich's music and then several other projects that we have going on now. So we go to Europe for two weeks and we play shows in Poland and the Netherlands, the music of Steve Reich and a project that we developed with Glenn Kochi. And then we bring Glenn's piece and Steve Reich's music to California, Wisconsin, Texas, Florida, kind of all over the place. How many uh, instruments do you schlep around the world? That's a good question. The answer is it depends. Today I'm gonna get in a van with my three colleagues, and we're gonna drive to New York City in a van full of drums. And next week we are flying to Poland, and ahead of us is flying nine flight cases full of instruments that were custom designed for Glenn Kochi's piece. And then when we go to California, we'll just get on an airplane with drumsticks in our back pocket, and the instruments are provided for us when we get there. So it really varies depending on the concert. But, you know, it's all part of the gig. (laughs) Well,
0: David Skidmore, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking with you and Jim. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you.